The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There are some people that make their work just another thing they have to do. And there are those that make their work something that they want to do. Welcome to Working on Purpose with your host, Elise Cortez. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration from those people who have found deeper meaning and personal connection to their work life. It's beyond 9 to 5. It's Working on Purpose. Now, here is your host, Elise Cortez. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Elise Cortez, joining you from Dallas, Texas. Texas, which is my home base, I have absolutely enjoyed my role serving as your host because it allows me to be on the constant lookout for people with interesting stories. Work can mean many different things to us. It can be a way to pay the bills, be a good fit with our skills or talents, allow us to cultivate and express core values we deeply care about, or even give us a sense of adventure. And maybe if we're lucky, we get all those things in one package, as I suspect might be the case with our guest this week. Whatever your work means for you, I want your time with us on the show to be both educational and inspirational, and ideally give you some insight that will help you get to wherever it is you really like to be in your own career. This week, my guest is Gwen Harris, who is the senior bird keeper at the Oregon Zoo in Portland. Her work has taken her scuba diving and bird watching in Peru, Alaska, Mexico, and Borneo. She is passionate about conservation and helping give voice to animals who cannot speak for themselves. She joins us today from Portland, Oregon. Gwen, welcome to the show. Thank you. This is going to be so much fun. I can't wait to sort of live vicariously through you. So I've got a lot of questions to learn about this fantastic experience of yours. So are you ready? I am ready. <laughs> okay. Just real quick, if you will, if you would just do a light brush stroke. I know you're at the Oregon Zoo today, which I've been to because I've, I'm from Oregon, and I come back through Portland every single summer. So I've been there. But just if you would lightly say what, you, what you're doing there, and then I want to queue up a bunch of questions about all these other fun adventures and things you've been doing along the way as well. Sounds good. Yes, you are very lucky to have been born in Oregon. I am uh, definitely an import into the state, but I'm happy to be here. I am, like you said, the senior bird keeper at the Oregon Zoo, which means uh, myself and my team get to help take care of most of the birds at the zoo. Anything from flamingos to California condors to tiny little weaver birds that live in Africa and lots of different kinds of waterfowl. Um, So that could mean working outside in the rain, working inside in a tropical building, um, dealing with helping a chick hatch from an egg that maybe wasn't quite making it all on its own. So it's a pretty um, varied job. Mm, Sounds wonderful. And I do want to hear more about that as well as we get a little bit deeper, but I want to queue up some of your past experience as well. Um, But before we do that, you know I have to ask because I'm a meeting and work researcher. So when I talk to guests who seem to be doing work that they really love today as an adult, as you seem to, I always kind of want to find out what did they want to be when they grew up when they were a kid? What did you hope to do when you were actually young? Well, you probably won't be very surprised when I say I wanted to be a vet when I grew up. So still working working with animals still. um, And I wanted that for a very long time. I always said that I was going to be a vet and then I was going to retire on a ranch. 
again, still animals. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I eventually learned I didn't really want to be stuck only with animals when they were sick. I didn't want to be just doing surgeries day in and day out. And so I decided that I didn't really want to go into the vet field. Um, and I didn't, of course. Mm-hmm. I have to share with you, Gwen, some of my listeners know this already, but do you have any idea, what, any guess what I wanted to be when I grew up, when I was in second grade? I'm going to go with radio broadcaster. <laughs> no, not even close. I wanted to be a horse with four animals and tail the whole bit. I mean, totally wanted to be a horse. Oh, my gosh, that's hilarious. I had never heard that one before. <laughs> yeah, my parents were horrified. It lasted for quite some time, too. So I don't know what, what finally got me over the edge, but I, I stopped wanting to be a horse. Um, well, I could have been your vet. Well, you see, thank you for that. I need somebody who is actually willing to take care of me for my craziness, right? Um, mm-hmm. All right. Well, I just had to add that. Sorry. Um, mm-hmm. So be- before we get deeper into work, too, I also want to hear about how maybe some of your, your previous work leading up to what you're doing at the zoo kind of happened for you. And um, I, you mentioned to me when we spoke by phone that you had planned to go into the, ph- the pharmaceutical industry, I think it was, but realized that wasn't the right place for you. So what happened? Why not? Yeah, so I, going into college, had realized that I didn't want to be a vet and somehow ended up thinking that I would be a pharmacist instead. So I was actually did three full years preparing for pharmacy school, and I worked a summer in a pharmacy and realized that although that job is great and wonderful for some, very well-paying, um, pretty stable job, I would have been bored out of my mind personally. So I changed my major to just general organismal biology at University of Kansas. Go Jayhawks. Have to throw that in there. <laughs> and I knew I wanted to do something with animals, but I wasn't 100% sure what that would end up looking like. Um, one of my last years there, I got an internship working in wildlife rehab at Operation Wildlife in Linwood, Kansas, and learned so very much with all of the hands-on work that I was doing there. Uh, I was lucky enough to get hired on as one of the few staff members there for, I think, about a year at the end of my college career. I realized that this could transition pretty well into working with animals in captivity, such as a zoo. And so I started to pursue zookeeping as a career, and I applied for a position at the Alaska Sea Life Center and was lucky enough to get it. So I moved from Kansas up to Alaska, knowing nobody with two suitcases and my dog. And that was quite an adventure. I was there for three or four years working with, um, it ended up being in the bird department there. So I ended up working with marine birds um, and also got trained to be a scuba diver all the way up through rescue scuba diving. I worked with some of the marine mammals there and was lucky enough to help out with their marine life rehab program as well. Um, And then from there, I moved down to Oregon and took the job as a senior bird keeper here. Okay. A couple questions I have to ask you about the Alaska experience. First, you learned how to scuba dive in Alaska. I thought it was cold learning how to scuba dive in Seattle. I can't imagine what that experience was like. I'm sure you had a very thick wetsuit, right? Uh, we dove in dry suit, so we got a little dry. spoiled with that. We were nice and warm. Oh, my gosh. I can't imagine. And where were you? In Anchorage, or what city were you in? It's in Seward, Alaska. It's two hours straight south of Anchorage. 
Gotcha, gotcha. Um, and a bit more about that sea life, if you don't mind, Gwen. So what kind of sea life did you deal with? What, with whales, sea life? What did what, what, you deal with? Yeah, so uh, we had several different species of marine birds, uh, such as puffins, auklets, mers, um, sea ducks, oyster catchers, uh, kittiwakes, which is a type of gull, and even tiny little arctic terns, which were a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a research population of stellar ziders and spectacled ziders, which are both sea ducks. Stellar ziders are endangered. And then the marine mammals that I was got to help work with were the stellar sea lion, harbor seals, and sea otters. So all lots of fun. And then in the marine animal rehabilitation crew, we worked with a few different species of seals, I don't think we got any sea lions in for rehab when I was there. We'd get a variety of different birds, bald eagles, um, maybe cormorant here or there. Um, just as injured animals were reported or brought in, we would respond and take care of them. Okay, so I went straight to the water once we finished the scuba, scuba and I realized that you really are focused, though, on birds, right? That's your, that is your career focus, yes? Yes. So okay. that job... I, Worked with a lot of birds in rehab just because it's pretty common to have a lot of raptors in the winter and a lot of baby birds in the summer that you have to rehab. And so I got a lot of experience with different animals, that, with different types of birds that way. Got the bird job, the bird heavy job in Alaska, and then it segued pretty well into continuing into birds. Um, so it ends up being a pretty fun group of animals to work with. I didn't start out you know, loving birds or wanting to be with them all of the time or specialize them in them even. Um, but it ended up being a fun challenge because there's so many different species out there and all of the species are so very different. A duck needs something very different than a penguin, which needs something very different from a hummingbird when it comes to taking care of them or breeding them or even just the medical, um, you know, having to fix them if they're broken. And so it's, there's always a challenge with birds, and nobody has ever done it all. Not all types of birds have been in captivity. Not all types of birds have been bred um, by people. And so there's always something to learn and do and master. Um, whereas if you're working with large felids or large bears, sure, you may not have worked with quite every species, but they're pretty similar. Um, so it's, it's a lot of fun to get to try new challenges all the time with birds. Mm-hmm. Because I did have a question I wanted to definitely ask you. Why birds? You know, it sounds like it, this is just something that happened along the way for you, it sounds like. Is that right? Or how did you yes. get to work with birds? Yeah, it really was. It was, you know, just happenstance of having a lot of bird experience. And I was applying for job after job. When I was doing rehab, I was applying for those zookeeping jobs. And I wasn't getting very many callbacks. And the one that I did end up getting a call back for and got the job was for a bird job at the Sea Life Center. Um, it was actually an AmeriCorps position initially. It was an 11-month AmeriCorps position, which made traveling to Alaska a little less scary because I only committed to 11 months. Uh, and I could stay if there was a job for me afterwards or I could leave and not feel bad. Um, but it was a bird job. And I think I was one of the few people that had applied for the AmeriCorps position um, which was taking care of birds and helping educate people about them um, that actually had bird experience. So I, I had a foot in the door that way. Mm-hmm. 
Well, now I can't resist asking you this since you are clearly in that space. Can you maybe just say a few things that you know about birds that you think would be interesting for our, for our listeners that maybe we don't know about the world of birds? Oh, my gosh, that's a tough one. There are so many things to know <laughs> Where about start? birds. Um, birds are so varied, and they are everywhere, all over. Every continent has birds. Every continent has multiple species of birds. There are thousands and thousands of species out there. Um, I would just encourage everybody to, to look up and to try to figure out how to identify a couple of different kinds of birds. Maybe you know what a robin looks like, um, but how does that compare to a woodpecker and what makes them different? Is it the way they're standing? Is it the color pattern? Is it what they're eating? Just take a minute to look at a couple of different kinds of birds and see all the different behaviors that are out there. Um, I hate to just give you a couple of random bird facts because I could give you hundreds of them, um, but I'd rather like to encourage people to just go out there and do a little bird watching. Mm-hmm. Down here in Dallas, we have um, we have a cardinal that is so. I think it's a cardinal. It's a beautiful red bird. It's so beautiful, and I always feel like when I'm out running here at White Rock Lake, and they they fly right in front of me, that they're they're just purposely saying, "Hey, good morning. How are you?" And <laughs> that they're flirting with me. But I I really enjoy the colors. We also have down here in Dallas. I don't know. I'm sure they're probably not native, but maybe somebody uh, released them. But a bunch of green, what I think are parrots. Um, but they fly all over the place. So I can't resist those colors myself. I love the colors piece. So I am looking, Gwen. I am. I'm looking up. Mm-hmm. Very good. <laughs> well, then we'll, we'll we'll talk more about the actual work that you're doing at, at the zoo here a little bit later. But I still want to kind of peruse that path of yours. Because I know that somewhere along the line in your work, you decided to go after a master's in zoology. And I think you did so with the University of Miami. And I think that's where you got introduced to your to the whale sharks. Um, and you've been actually doing something recently with these animals, as I understand it. I know our, our common friend, Valerie, is how we got mm-hmm. connected. And she mentioned something about your latest expedition. But can you say, th- say th- why first, why did you choose to go for that master's? And if you would maybe say a little bit about the work you've done with whale sharks. Well, I enjoyed my time learning about biology, obviously, in uh, my undergrad And while I loved learning about it, I actually had very little drive to get a master's or a doctorate degree um, in biology or anything necessarily, uh, because usually the biological fields require you to do something really cool, like go out in the field and collect species from something or to band a bunch of birds. Um, And then a lot of times you have to go back to the lab and process that blood or process those feathers that you took. And it's months and years of processing that and dealing with advisors and changing the research projects. I saw so many of my friends go through that. I really didn't have a strong um, desire to go to grad school. Um, I love learning and I wanted to continue to learn and I would have really enjoyed the field work aspect of grad school, but I uh, didn't want to do the lab work or the GTA teaching and stuff like that. Um, but I found this program, the Global Field Program with the University of Miami of Ohio, and um, it really interested me because it was a non-visas program. I got to do international travel with it three years in a row, and I got to learn a lot about zoology and global conservation. Um, So that is kind of what led me to get this degree. It was, it's still a pretty new program, and um, it was, it, I was able to do it while I was still working full time. I didn't have to move. And then I just took a couple weeks off 
each summer and went and did these awesome things in pretty cool locations um, and got to get my master's out of it. So I think I kind of cheated the system a little bit. Mm, I think it's brilliant, um, Gwen. What are you talking about? It sounds brilliant <laughs> to me. <laughs> and so, yeah, so the first year, my first international trip was down to Baja, and we stayed at the Vermilion Sea Field Station. And we actually were um, the only trip that year that got skunked on whale sharks. So I didn't get to see them that year. That was four, I think, four years ago, four or five years ago, five years ago. And so I actually didn't get to see them then. Uh, I then went through the program and finished it and and years later, was invited to go back for the the Stars to the Sea project that they were working on, which I'll explain a little bit, and that with the whale shark. So I was all on board, excited to go down and help with this project and hopefully get to see whale sharks in the process. Uh, the So the Stars to the Sea project, this is the first time that they've done this at this location, and they, I think they even are the ones that named it Stars to the Sea. Um, and it works with uh, an organization called Wild Book for Whale Sharks, um, which is at whalesharks.org. And it's basically a global library of whale shark photos and sightings. And so what we were trying to do was cite whale sharks in the area down in Baja and identify where they are, of course, what day it was. We would jump in the water with them uh, just with snorkel and fins and get photos of a particular part of their body. And they would use this spot pattern to tell if that animal has been documented before or if it's a new animal, and then they would add that to the database. And if possible, we would try to get a length on the animal and then sex the animal, which was just free diving underneath it. Um, of course, we, we didn't catch these animals. We tried not to even touch the animals if possible. We were just swimming next to them, and sometimes they were just lolling along eating, and sometimes they were booking it and didn't really want to be around us. And we tried to respect that. If we were able to, you know, just snap a photo and they didn't want to be around us, then we wouldn't put a hard chase on them. But we would yeah. still try to get that photo, if, gotcha. if at all possible, because that would help identify that individual. When, let me let me stop you if I can just for a second here. We we need to take sure. a really short break, and I want to hear all those details. I don't want to sh- I don't want to shortcut them. So hold your thought for just a moment. It's time for our first break. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Gwen Harris, who is the senior bird keeper at the Oregon Zoo in Portland. She's been telling us about her her how she got into the field and her recent adventures. Um, and her school adventures, being able to observe whale sharks. After the break, we'll hear more about that and also her work getting to work with primates in Borneo. Stay with us. We're on Facebook along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. Our world is shrinking. We get information across the planet as fast and as easily as across the street. 
Lately, it seems as if none of it is good. The world has become so addicted to negativity, fear, drama, and our kids are learning fast. Are you worried about your teen? Do you know where they are, who they're with, and what they're really up to? Power of Peace Radio tackles real issues that are changing the minds of the next generation. Get involved in the conversation on Monday evenings with Kit Cummings. Pop Radio is about interrupting and redirecting those who are on a dangerous course and bringing light into dark places with powerful topics and real stories. We bring hope to those who need it most because hope is the new dope. Power of Peace Radio, Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Empowerment. We're on Facebook, along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. We're here with Gwen Harris, whose work as the senior bird keeper at the Oregon Zoo has also taken her scuba diving and bird watching in such places as Peru, Alaska, Mexico, and Borneo. Those are actually part of her master's experiences, I, sh- I should say, and not part of the zoo per se, but part of her career. She joins us today from Portland, Oregon. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. We were talking about her experience with um, studying the whale sharks there off Baja before the break, and I want to allow her to finish her thoughts about that. It sounds so fascinating, the idea of being in the water with whale sharks and studying them. Um, tell us where you, where you left off there, Gwen. Where you were actually in the water with these, and you were trying to measure them, tell their genders, and just try to capture information about them. What else were you doing? That's absolutely right. So we were collecting those data, but it didn't mean anything unless we got that um, that photo so we can identify the animal. And so we load those photos onto this Wild Book for Whale Sharks website at whalesharks.org, and then they process the spot pattern on those photos in this one particular area of the animal, and then they use that spot pattern to identify them, just like you would use a tiger's stripe or the fluke pattern of a whale um, or our fingerprints. You can use those spot patterns on the whale sharks to identify them. And so we'll know this whale shark was in Baja in July this year, but then in by the time January rolls around, it was spotted over in Australia. Mm. So we can get a better idea of their uh, migration patterns, if we get the sex and the length, we can get a better idea of their growth rate. Because very little is known about this kind of elusive species of shark, which is um, it's kind of fun to get to be in on some of this somewhat groundbreaking documenting of all these different animals. Mm-hmm. No doubt. Um, now, whale sharks, um, do they, are they dangerous to people or are they tend to leave people alone? Or what's, what's their socialization with us? They tend to leave people alone. They seem to be, in my experience, seem to be pretty peaceful. Um, they, they are very large. They can get 30, 40, 50 feet long, um, but they, they're not carnivorous in that they're going to eat the human sense. So they're not dangerous like that. They eat small 
tiny little things that are in the water, and they just filter them out. Um, but there is still, I found, uh, an instinct. It, I don't know if it's just ingrained or if it's from watching Jaws as a child or something, but there's still this instinct when you get in the water and there's a fin and there's this really big mouth coming right at you. So you definitely had to fight that instinct when you jumped at the water and be like, okay, they're just eating krill. It'll be okay. <laughs> wow, Gwen, that is so cool. I have to tell you, I have a very strong struggle reflex, and I, I wonder if I would be able to silence that. That would be interesting. I always think about, about myself being an extremely yummy creature in the, in the water to those bigger animals <laughs> out there. <laughs> Definitely, and probably a lot slower than them, too. So yeah, no doubt, no doubt. I can't swim very fast, even with fins. Um, well, how awesome. I think our listeners will really enjoy hearing about that, and I certainly applaud that you're, you're studying these animals to help us understand how they move around. I think that's just beautiful. I really appreciate the work that you're doing. It just sounds fascinating, and I, I too, appreciate your conservation efforts, and I know we want to hear more about that as well. But um, hats off, Gwen, hats off. Thank you. Well, to continue that journey, now I'm realizing that this fun travel that you've been doing here it was part of that program to get your master's, which I think is fantastic. I didn't realize it when we talked on the phone. Um, but the next thing that you told me about that you'd also mentioned that you'd been to Borneo to work with the primate class and got to work with orangutans in the wild. Wow, what was that like? It was pretty hands down amazing and also a little terrifying knowing how strong orangutans are but being you know 15 feet from one in the wild was nothing between you um but it was pretty magical to get to see all of those different types of animals um it was a primate class and we did work with some orang researchers um, at the denaugarang field center in malaysia excuse me, on Borneo, and they were very close to us, like like I said, um, but the, they were studying all sorts of different things about these animals there. Um, we got to help participate in nest site surveys and in um, paying attention to what kind of vegetation they were using, because it was a secondary forest. It wasn't a primary forest. There's very little primary forest left, and in fact, secondary is about as good as you're going to get, um, and so they were really interested in the types of plants that the animals were using, um, partially um, just because they didn't know and partially because, um, you know, when they are doing reforestation, they'd like to plant um, different things that will help make for a more successful ecosystem and for these endangered animals. Um, so there were the orangs, but there are also lots of other animals, other primates and other types of animals. They were doing proboscis monkey research while we were there, um, which are really kind of hilarious animals to look at, um, slow loris. They were tracking Floloras, which are very small primates. Um, there was researchers working there with frogs, crocodiles, trapping small mammals, monitoring um, all t- types of wild cattle. Uh, they even were monitoring elephant movements in the area. And someone was working on monitor lizards. So there was a lot of different variety, and we got to speak with all of the different researchers, and we even got to shadow several of them while we were there. Um, so that was pretty cool to see that diversity. And then um, we spent a little bit of time working with the Hutan. Uh, they do more community-based conservation. They do some science, but it's mostly conservation um, based around the people in the area. Um, so they employ, train and employ wildlife wardens and a reforestation crew, which was really fun. One of the reforestation crew was completely female in the area, so that was fun. Um, they do some hornbill conservation um, with working with their nest holes or different nest cavities. Um, 
of course, they deal with elephant encounters, and that can be dangerous, human and elephant encounters. Um, and also, elephants can raid crops in people's, on people's land, so they uh, teach farmers how to discourage elephants in the area and how to scare them off without harming them, without shooting them. So they teach them all different ways to do things like that. And, of course, they do work around orangutan preservation as well. Mm. Sounds really amazing. How long were you there? I was in Borneo for about three weeks. The class was more around like two weeks. I got to do a little extra traveling on my own. Mm-hmm. And, and what's, help us understand the, the team. You mentioned lots of different teams working out there. It's just, just, I can envision like a large group of people out there working with the animals. Is it not true or about how many people were working on this project? Well, there was a lot of different things. So we had our, our class there, which ended up being around 20 people, I believe. Um, but there were researchers at the station. I would say there was about a, between the staff that worked at the station and the researchers that were there, maybe about a dozen at that time, maybe a little bit more than a dozen. Um, but they would, you know, they would go out. One person would go out and do the small animal trapping, and one person would go out and track the small primates in that night with radio telemetry. Um, so they, it's, it's not an entire team going out to do this. Where the teams may come in is more of the longer-term research projects um, or the longer-term conservation projects like the reforestation. So there would be a small team of women going out to plant trees in particular areas um, to encourage reforestation after the trees have been cut down years and years ago. Um, and perhaps the land had been donated back for preservation and to encourage the wildlife in the area. Um, so the Hutan has several different types of groups. They have the wildlife wardens. Uh, I don't I don't know how many there are of those, um, but they do have, you know, on-site staff for education as well as biologists. Oh, it just really sounds fascinating. And the other thing that I find interesting about how you're describing this, and I'd like your, you to maybe speak to this if you can. You mentioned before the idea of being a pharmacist would just drive you crazy and just you'd be <laughs> bored out of your mind. Um, what, I'm, what I think is fascinating about the work that you do, and part of the reason I wanted to have you on the show, is that you do something that, one, is a little bit different from the mainstream, but two, you're outside, you're interacting with animals, and but you're outside, and there's that notion of you know, the free space around you. And I don't know to any extent if that matters to you or if that's important, that kind of freedom of movement at all. Does that factor in for you? I think so. I think I get a little stir-crazy sometimes. Um, I definitely like being outdoors and experiencing the animals in their normal habitat. That's, that's pretty magical. Um, when I travel, I do one of a few things. I'm either seeing family or going to a zoo somewhere, or traveling and trying to see wildlife. Um, so that definitely spills over into my personal life, too. Um, but I feel very lucky to not only get to work with the animals in captivity, but to have been able to, through my schooling and also through some of my own travels, to see a lot of these animals in the wild and to potentially get to help them with some of the projects that we've worked on. Um, so it's really nice to be able to translate my work out into the animal's home environment, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I definitely want to talk more about some of those interests, and we'll get to that in just a second here. But before we do, the last thing I want to keep, if we can, related to this whole project, and if these adventures that you've been talking about weren't riveting enough, I think you <laughs> also said that you had been to Peru to work with birds in the Amazon. So when was that, and what was that all about? 
Yeah, I did that in, I think, the summer of 2013. Um, went down to the Amazon and was able to work with a group of people. Again, it was a class. It was a, a avian conservation class. And I was very excited because it was a bird class. I could have taken a lot of other classes, but, of course, I took the bird one. And we got to go down to the Amazon and miss net birds for a couple of weeks. And that was always a lifetime dream of mine to learn how to miss net and to, to learn more about that particular kind of um, field work for birds. And so what a miss net is, for many of you that don't know what a miss net is, it's a very fine net made uh, usually of um, plastic or nylon strings, like fishing lines, and it's um, pretty see-through to us and a bird, and it's kind of hung uh, in a very particular way to make it safe for the animal to land in, but um, the birds will not see it, and they will try to fly, and they will run into it, and then they either get tangled in it or drop into, if it's hung correctly, they'll drop into a pocket and not be able to get out of it. Um, and then the researchers will come along and get the bird, band it, tell what kind of species it is, record all the information about it, and release it again. And then hopefully, not only will they know what kind of animals are in that area, what kind of um, condition they're in, if they were in breeding condition, or if they were unhealthy with a bunch of parasites, but then potentially if they come back two years later and they catch that same bird again, or they're or maybe somebody in another place catches that same bird again and it's banded, they can report that information and get longer life-term history information about those birds. So that was so fun. It was a life goal of mine to work and to help do banding, and I look forward to doing more in the future. Um, we were working with Inca Terra Association there. They were kind of supporting all of the work. And the one of the main things was that population of birds there hadn't been strongly documented. So they didn't know exactly what kind of species had been there for a long time. Um, and the locals had already been just just reporting that they think that there were already changes happening because of climate change or because of deforestation. And they're seeing different types of birds there than usual. So it's really important to identify what kind of birds are there now. And then that way they can tell if there are any changes in the future. And that was kind of the idea of doing the project in the first place. And so the project continues on. They do it, I think, quarterly. They go down and document which, what types of species are down there. Mm. You know, you're reminding me, Gwen, um, we're talking years ago. So I lived, I got to live in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, um, and from 1991 to 93. And I, we did take a trip to the Pantanal. And what I remember so distinctly is, oh, my gosh, some of the size of some of these birds, I felt like it was like an airplane going overhead, you know? It was mm-hmm. just, I, I, it was just, they were enormous and beautiful and majestic. And I'm, that would have been amazing to learn about some of those kinds of birds and where were they, what were they doing and how, you know, what was their life like? It was fascinating. So you, you just gave me a wonderful memory. Thank you. Well, good. I'm glad. Well, it's already time for a break again, if you can believe that. Time flies so fast when we're having a good conversation. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Gwen Harris, who works as a senior bird keeper at the Oregon Zoo and has also taken scuba diving and bird watching um, adventures, I should say, in such places as Peru, Alaska, Mexico, and Borneo. She joins us today from Portland, Oregon. After the break, we'll hear more about her interest in conservation, some of the things she's doing to that end. Stay with us.
find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. At the leading edge of quantum science, a revolution of ideas is emerging that challenges everything we believe about the nature of our world and how we define ourselves within it. Quantum Connection, exploring health, science, and spirit with Marina Rose QDNA, explores these cutting-edge breakthroughs in quantum science and offers piercing, probing, colorful, insightful dialogue and commentary with some of the world's most influential thought leaders on the most important topics of our time. Listen every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's one 346 9141 You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We're here with Gwen Harris, who is the senior bird keeper at the Oregon Zoo in Portland. She has been sharing a bit about her adventures that she's gone through when she was getting her master's degree that have taken her in various places across the world. Very exciting to listen to that that account and hear really what you're doing, Gwen, to learn about animals and, 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 and their habitats and, and their worlds and such. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, from here, what I would love to do, um, one of the things that you, you told me when we were on the phone is that it can be kind of hard to get into this industry. And since there probably are listeners on the phone right now um, who are maybe contemplating this kind of a career, if you could say a bit about that, what makes it hard to get into the field and you know, how, why is it hard to gain access and what was your experience like there? Absolutely. I certainly do not want to discourage anyone from getting into the field. Just more give them a realistic um, idea of what it's going to take and perhaps maybe some tips that will help them uh, get their foot in the door a little bit faster. Um, it is uh, can be very difficult to get jobs in the zookeeping industry. Um, a lot of people think it'd be a pretty sweet job, and it is a pretty sweet job, um, but it uh, so therefore there are a lot of people going for those jobs as well. Um, what I've found and has gotten even more so since I've gotten into the industry 10 years ago, um, is that you need to do a lot of free work, a lot of free labor. So generally they want you to have a bachelor's degree, and that bachelor's degree would be in biology, zoology, or a similar field. And then you'll have to do several internships, um, generally moving around from zoo to zoo or to maybe to an aquarium, 
uh, doing field work or doing wildlife rehab uh, in order to get your foot in the door somewhere or to get enough experience to really catch the eye of somebody reviewing your application. Um, the tricky part of that is not all areas have lots of zoos real close. So that generally means you're going to have to move around and work for free for a while. So hopefully you've got some savings or a very understanding set of parents um, and they can help you out while you move across the country and try to get those jobs. Um, But it can be pretty difficult to get the experience that you need um, and the amount of time to get a full-time job at another zoo. Um, There are also several applicants usually when you're applying for these jobs. Um, They don't pay well. Some places do. Oregon Zoo has great pay, great benefits, and our jobs we typically have three or four hundred applicants for, and several of them are qualified. It's not like a huge application pool that is unqualified. There's a lot of people that we have to choose from. However, if you move down to Texas or Florida, there are a lot more zoos, aquariums, and wildlife places down there where you can get that experience. They may not pay nearly as well, but you can start off by getting a couple of years experience down there with different species and then move on from there. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Thank you so much for that, Gwen. You know, one of the things that this show is definitely about is when people, people, as I say, may ever, may ever well be tuning in because they are considering doing this kind of work. So hearing about, you know, maybe some of those initial barriers and how to overcome them or maybe ways around it is certainly very helpful. So that that's great. Um, any other tips maybe for those people considering the field? I would say be patient and be open to working with different types of animals. Um, if you are, unless you really focus on being a dolphin trainer and you only ever wanted to be a dolphin trainer, that's okay. Just realize you may take a lot longer to get that type of job. If you have a wider variety of experience, which you might get working at a smaller place where you might work with bears and small mammals like meerkats and then work with birds, even though you know, just for one job you're working with all the different types of animals, that variety of experience may lead you to get a job more easily in the future. Okay, gotcha. Okay, well, my next question may be related to this. We're kind of getting into, you know, before we're talking about actually getting entrance to the field. Now from here, once you're in it, I'd love to hear you say if you had any maybe good experience working with a mentor or a role model that's made a difference to you. We've talked about that in other, other of my shows, and I'd just be curious if you've had that experience. I've been lucky to have several different role models um, throughout my time. And I, I don't want to call out any particular managers, but of course I'm going to call out a couple of people. But all of my managers have had um, things to share with me, experience in the industry that I can learn from. Um, Michael Illig is my current boss, and he's taught me a lot about dealing with people. And Kim Smith, the former director of the Oregon Zoo, really mentored me and helped me learn how to um, get an in in the bird industry, which can be a little bit clicky, and learn how to talk with people and how to approach people and learn different techniques um, for doing different types of husbandry with birds. Um, Robert Webster at the Cincinnati Zoo has been a very big support and helped introduce me to different folks. So they are all wonderful mentors for me. And then Tanya Paul at my current institution um, is just a rock for me every single day um, from anything from helping with bird stuff to uh, helping navigate leadership roles. And uh, so they've kind of all been mentors for me. We've been 
lucky enough to go to conferences. I go to AZA's mid-year meeting every year, and we are basically a group of a bunch of bird nerds all together, and we talk about bird stuff for a week, and we get to learn from each other. So we'll do different presentations, curators from other institutions, or even zookeepers from other institutions will present on problems they have and how they fix them, um, or really nice breeding success stories, and we all get to kind of learn off of each other. So that's been one great thing to have a whole community of mentors to learn from, basically. Mm. I'm glad you shared that, Gwen. One of the things that I always stress, of course, and I, you know, I do learning development for a living, and right now I'm teaching a class called Professional Seminar to Seniors at Southern Methodist University, and it's, it's meant to really help them get their first job. And I always say the importance of really focusing and developing your, your network, because that's where you're going to get your job. And the stronger that network, the deeper it is, the more meaningful it is, probably the easier it's going to be. And so all those connections that you were talking about, to me, that makes mm-hmm. complete sense, right? And the conferences you're talking about going to, that makes so much sense to me. So Absolutely. I'm glad you shared that. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, well, next, I want to get into your interest in uh, conservation. One of the things that you said on the phone, which I found very intriguing, is that you, you have a mission to in your work to really give animals a good life while in captivity while giving them a voice, which I think I just love the way you said that. Say more about that. What are you trying to accomplish? What, how do you want to help? Sure. These animals, of course, are mostly in captivity because of us. Uh, most of them have spent their entire lives in captivity. They were born or hatched in captivity and will continue in that way until they die. And they don't have as many choices potentially as their wild counterparts. They don't get a mate choice. We pick their mate for them. You know, if we get in that, that female tiger, that's going to be the one that goes in with our male tiger. They get, don't get to, you know, go through the courtship and pick their mate. Um, they, they are stuck in the Portland climate, for instance. Um, they may have the choice to go inside where it's warm, but they don't get to have sunshine if it's rainy outside and, or they don't get to migrate. For instance, with birds, um, they, our birds don't get to migrate. They maybe get a little antsy during migration season. So they don't have all of the experiences that their wild counterparts will have, but we still can provide a wonderful quality of life for them. And I just think it's very neat to get to be the person to try to brainstorm about different ways we can improve the quality of life for these animals. And that could be just mentally stimulating them with training. It can be changing their habitat substrates or environments, adding trees, um, giving them different scents to smell. It can be um, uh, so very an exercise plan for them if they are maybe migratory animals or animals that walk a lot, trying to figure out ways to encourage them to walk more in a productive way. Um, so they're, it, and they don't have that voice. They, they don't have a human voice to tell us what they need and what they want. So there is a lot of sleuth work and guessing and trial and error and trying to figure out um, what does it mean when the giraffe makes that noise or holds its foot in this particular way, and then why and what can we do to help? But is it really a problem, or is it actually acceptable for it to be that way and a normal behavior for them? Um, so mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting um, and challenging, but you feel like, you know, you're working for that purpose of helping that animal have the best life possible with what we have available to us. Mm-hmm. All of that makes so much sense to me, and I love hearing you talk about that. I mean, I grew up on a farm and loved animals, and 
um, was around them my whole life, and I, you know that's probably that's part of the reason that I wanted to be a horse because I had a horse and I loved him. <laughs> so uh, I, I appreciate that, and and to that end, related, I'm curious to hear more about your interest in conservation. I, I don't know if it's part of your job or just part of your value system. Help us understand that. So we have, we should have these animals in captivity to help tell their story, to help talk about their wild counterparts to either educate people about the really cool adaptations that these animals have and why they are how they are, and snakes serve a purpose. If you see snakes, they're probably eating rodents or critters around, so please don't kill the snakes. They're doing a service. They're getting rid of the mice that you don't want in your house. Um, And to be able to tell that story and to help protect those animals in the wild, and that could be anything from don't step on that spider to... Um, you know, really feeling a connection with that polar bear, well, you're probably not living in a polar bear environment, and you probably can't directly stop them from getting hit by cars or something like that. Um, But you can perhaps think about ways that you can help curb your CO2 emissions and maybe turn your thermostat, make your thermostat a little bit warmer in the summer and a little bit cooler in the winter and to help decrease the ice melt and whatnot. Um, so there's ways that you can do, uh, draw those connections with the animals that are in captivity in order to help their wild counterparts. Because if you're not helping their wild counterparts, you're not going to have these animals anymore. And it, it, that's sad for so many reasons, on top of being potentially economic, ecologically disastrous and potentially economically disastrous as well. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, you know, again, I, I, when I was living in Oregon, that was a big focus of my interest as well, conservation as it is. I know a lot of people, it's just, it's part of the culture and the heartbeat there. But I also believe, though, that there's probably listeners all over the world that would be curious to know how maybe they can help um, because they care about animals or the cause or the environment. How maybe can our listeners help with what you're, what you want to conserve? There's a ton of different ways you can do this. Um, anything from Something as simple as being thoughtful about the types of pets that you have. So it's an appropriate kind of animal for your lifestyle and for where you live. Um, if you have, if you got that pet red-eared slider, which is a type of turtle, for those who don't know that, um, <laughs> at the pet store, and you end up not taking care of it, and then you release it into your local pond, well, that's an invasive animal, and there are invasive turtles or invasive parrots, for instance, in Texas, um, where those aren't native to the area, and they will displace native animals and that won't be able to survive, that won't be able to serve their normal role in the environment. So, Or potentially being aware of maybe of getting a parrot as a pet, being very cognizant of where it came from. Maybe it was caught in the wild. That still happens. Parrots are still caught in the wild. They are still smuggled in, and mm-hmm. um, they are depleting the population of these endangered animals out there. Um, so just be aware of what types of pets you get. And then, of course, there's a million different things you can do um, to help with um, ecological conservation. You can like to work. You can... Um, I personally try to not buy bottled water or bottled soda it's such an easy way to just say no that's an easy thing i can give up i carry a water bottle with me everywhere sometimes i carry two with me everywhere and you can ask to fill up your water bottle at the soda fountain instead of buying that coke 
at, out of the, the plastic bottle. Or if you don't have a container with you, try to use something that is biodegradable or more easily recycled. So you can use a paper cup, which will biodegrade, um, or you can use an aluminum can as opposed to a plastic bottle because aluminum is much easier to recycle back into another can. So just being aware of your choices as a consumer, um, buying things that are use sustainable palm oil. And if you want to look into that, that's a whole other deal. Um, but that is a big thing that affects those orangutans is palm oil plantations um, are, are cutting down forests have palm oil, which is in virtually everything from shampoos to kick, or to different kinds of candy. So look at the packages, educate yourself about what you are buying. Um, don't pollute. You can do peach, bleach cleanups. And then you can even be involved in citizen science projects, um, like I was with the whale shark. Anybody who has a photo of a whale shark can load it to that website. And put that, you know, I saw this in Australia in May of 2015, and they can identify that. You can be a citizen science. You can help uh, look through photos online of condors feeding at carcasses, and I try to identify what other species are feeding with them and how many condors are there. Um, you can... Gwen, I, I need to stop you. I'm so, I'm so sorry, Gwen. We are so we are so um, just a few seconds out of time. I would love to have you keep going, but we're the clock is ticking off. I want to go and quickly thank you for being on the show. Uh, you know, you have much more to say, so thank you for being here with us. You are very welcome. Sorry, I, I can talk about this today, evidently. <laughs> That's okay. No worries. Um, if you want to learn more about Gwen Harris and her work at the Oregon Zoo, do visit www.oregonzoo.org. It's been a great conversation, Gwen. Loved hearing about all of your adventures, and you do remind us all to, remind, to remember that work is at least one-third of our lives, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.